I recently came across the story of, um, I think it's a true story, of a guy called Oliver Franks. In 1962, he was given a life peerage as Baron Franks of Headington, just up Headington Hill. Um, The recognition he received, though, came just after the the Second World War. He was uh, the British ambassador to the United States of America from 1948 to 1952. The story's told of uh, a Washington radio station in 1948 uh, telephoning the various foreign ambassadors um, based in the US, asking them what they would like for Christmas um, that year. It doesn't take much imagination to predict the kind of answers that came. So the French ambassador... They said, well, I'm really hoping for peace throughout the world. And the Soviet ambassador, a bit of a dig, he said, freedom for all people enslaved by imperialism. And then came the British ambassador, Oliver Franks. He said, it's very kind of you to ask. I'd quite like a small box of crystallised fruits, please. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. What do you want for Christmas? What are, you, what are you hoping for this Christmas? It is a massive industry, isn't it? It's colossal, as Daniel said. It started at least two months ago. Marketers are well aware of, of what we're like, of our hearts. As Martin Luther put it, as idol factories forming and fixating and putting our faith in other things, things to worship. And so to to maximise pester power, as they call it, so the advertising, particularly for kids, begins back in October or August. If I had a pound for each time I heard in my house, can I have that for Christmas? I'd be a very rich man now. Studies show on average, even in this economic climate, around about £592 will be spent per person on Christmas, on presents, food, decorations, all the trimmings which of course for many means then more debt, buying things they can't afford. What do you want for Christmas? What is your heart set on? Because John says he knows what we need this Christmas. Have a look at the last bit of verse 14, if you've got your Bible still open, page 1063. John says we need this. He says, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see, John says, God gives us himself. That's what we need. If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then this is what John thinks you need at the top of your Christmas list. More than anything else in the world, you need God's gift of himself to you, the Lord Jesus. So first point, Jesus is the present that we need this Christmas. And yet immediately think, well, what's he here for? What does he want from me? We're nervous, aren't we? We're suspicious. Why has he come? Like the, the proverbial parent coming home halfway through a teenager's party, we're thinking, has he come to, to, to spoil my fun? Has he come to make demands on us? What is he here for? Well, from John, it's actually the opposite. Do you remember the story so far in John 1 is that it's a story of God coming to earth, not to tell us what to do, but to come and to tell us how to be friends with God again. He's come, as we saw with Peter, as light in the darkness. And we've seen these past few days what a dark world it is. Shootings in America or or countless other things around the world. 
He's come to deal with the consequences of our rebellion towards God. It's a story of the eternal word of God taking on flesh and walking among us, coming to live in the land that he, he made. There's a tale told by the American pastor John Ortberg. He tells the story of a man called Father Damien, who, who was a priest, and he went to work um, amongst lepers and uh, a village in, the, in Hawaii, um, he'd been quarantined as a, as a leper colony, and he goes to live among them for 16 years. He lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds. He, he cleaned their sores. He embraced the bodies that nobody else would touch. He preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left untouched. He organized schools and bands and choirs. He built homes so they could live. He built coffins so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. And slowly it was said of this place that it became not a place to die, but a place to live. And he wasn't careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from the people. He dipped his fingers into the bowls with them. He, he shared um, their pipes. He did not always wash his hands after he bandaged their sores. He got close, and for this they loved him. And then one day he stood up to preach. And he said, we lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them, he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island, he was in their skin. He had come to live with them, but now he came to die with them. And so John's Gospel is the story of the eternal word of God made flesh and walking among us. It's pivotal, it's exciting, it's jaw-dropping, it's new. And yet John wants us to see by the language he uses that in one sense this is where the Bible has been going. We should have expected it. It's been pointing to this all along, the promise of Emmanuel, of of God with us. So have a look at verse 14 again and you see, um, if you know verse 14 or you've heard this sort of stuff before, that the word is Jesus tabernacled among us. And we think that sounds like a camping term. What's going on there? John's making a theological point for us. Thousands of years before, God had rescued his people from Egypt with Moses. They had gone through the desert and the wilderness to the promised land, and yet God had been among his people. How had he been among them? Well, each night as they set up camp, there would be a tent in the middle, a special tent, a tabernacle. God dwelling in the middle of his people. And yet listen to what happens when when Moses makes the tabernacle. He says this, it says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. He says it twice, doesn't want us to miss it. God's glory, his brilliance and majesty and power, so amazing that the people couldn't even be in the same place as him. And yet here is God in the flesh tabernacling among his people. What do we see as we look at Jesus? We see the glory of God. And yet we see it in humility and weakness. And God's glory had not been in the land for many hundreds of years. The people had returned from exile. They they had made a Jerusalem of sorts and rebuilt a, a temple of sorts and they had dedicated it. But there was no glory. No obvious presence of God in the land until now. 
God has come to dwell among his people, but not through a temple or a tabernacle, but through a person. A man who comes with grace and truth. And maybe you're thinking, well, why do I need that top of my Christmas list? Why does God think that is what I need the most in my life? It's interesting, at Christmas, a lot of people think that God is a bit like Father Christmas. He's, he's got a beard, he's a bit old, he's out of touch. He's this sort of slightly dodgy kind of lurker who, who watches you to see what you're doing. And if you're good, then he's nice to you. And if you're bad, then really he's not. And yet the picture that John paints for us is that that is utterly wrong. The gracious God of the Bible is kind even when we're bad, when we don't deserve it. Even when we keep forgetting him, he is patient. Even when we treat him as a, as a life mechanic, he is patient and kind. God is gracious, John says. If you were to read through John's Gospel, you would see those things again and again and again in action. The Word made flesh, dying on a cross, dying so that God's loving and just anger against sin is taken on himself. Which is why John says that is our greatest need. That is why he should be at the top of your list this Christmas. He offers you the gift of relationship. He offers you, as we'll see in a bit, a new family. He offers you new life. And we're thinking, it sounds amazing. Better than the iPad Mini that I'm after, or the Lego Ninjago Epic Dragon Battle, or the One Direction Collector Dolls, or whatever it is at the top of your list. It sounds amazing. But then look at the surprise in verse 10 and 11. The surprise is many do not recognize or receive him. So he, Jesus, verse 10, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Last week we saw that there's this conflict between light and darkness. The two do not happily mix. The conflict that meant that, that the light was never overcome, though. Darkness did not rule. And so we ought not be surprised that this world does not recognize its maker. The rebellion that meant that we turned our backs on God mean that we don't recognize the one who made the world. Which is why we shouldn't be surprised when we look at the top-line results from the 2011 census data. The, the media and the others will be and have been all over a reduction in church numbers. Numbers claiming to be Christians. And again, an increase in those claiming to have no faith, no religion. That's true nationally, it's true locally, if you saw the Oxford Mail on Wednesday. The story went, Oxford is the agnostic capital of the UK, with one-third of the city claiming no religion at all. Oxford has the highest percentage of non-believers per population in the country. But as far as I can see, that just gives us a truer reflection of what people really believe. There's a whole category of people in the past who we may call cultural Christians, a label people give themselves rather than actually living it out and now they're happy not to label themselves as that. Which seems to me that we have a clearer picture of where people really are. 
just as then the world that was made through him that did not recognize him, well, so it is now. Hostility to Jesus that we see in the gospel, that we see in the papers, shouldn't take us by surprise. What perhaps should is verse 11. See, within the history of the human race, the scriptures tell us that there was a specific nation, a specific people who were chosen generations before, who were prepared for the coming of the king, who who were prepared for this moment for centuries, blessed with the great promises of God, blessed with a land to live in. And so he comes to that land, to that which was his own, and to his people who did not receive him. They should have recognised him. We know the story, we, we will sing the story in a bit. Born in the st- stable in the back of an inn, caught up in an ethnic purge, becomes a refugee, flees from society, lives in obscurity. And, and the crowds came as his earthly ministry started, but the crowds came too as they saw him crucified. As his own saw him crucified. In many ways, as you read the Gospel of John, it's a great illustration of this. These verses in 1 to 14 particularly act as a kind of contents page for the rest of the Gospel. As we said last week, if you're here and you aren't a Christian and you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that with you and to read that. You will see conflict after conflict after conflict with Jesus. Chapter 5, Jesus claims to have power to give life and to judge, and the people want to kill him. Chapter 8, he claims to have been around before Abraham, the the I am, and the people want to kill him. And so we think, well, if those who were waiting for him don't get it and don't see him, is there any hope for optimism for us? Has the mission failed? And yet you see, as the story unfolds, those who ought to have been expecting him miss him. But then, to some extent, those we least expect recognise who he is and follow him. Which is our second surprise. Many do not recognise or receive him, but some do, and become children of God. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. It's not all bad news. Those who do receive him, those who do believe in his name, well, it is those people who become part of his family, who become children of God. And do you see the swap that happens? The Athanasius, the early church father, said, he became what we are so that he might make us what he is. He takes on flesh and a name and a face and walks on the earth and becomes a man so that as we trust him, we become part of God's family. In fact, later in the Gospel, again, chapter 17, just hours before the cross, John will pray, sorry, Jesus will pray for Christians all around the world and all down the ages that they, as they trust in Jesus, might be taken into the, the life of the Trinitarian God. They might have unity and glory that he shares, that the word who was with God in the beginning has enjoyed for eternity. It's It's mind-blowing. He becomes what we are so that we might become what he is. 
Or again in verse 12, he, he gave them the right to become children of God. It's a strong word, isn't it? He freely gives me what I don't deserve and what I can never deserve. And then he insists that it is my right. And it's a right for all who believe. All sections of society. Again, you'll see it in John as you read through. Chapter 4, the outcast, unnamed Samaritan woman. Chapter 3, the, the proverbial professor of Israel, Nicodemus. It's a broad family that Jesus gathers. Children for the father from many backgrounds. Born not of natural descent, verse 13. That is, it's nothing to do with your ethnic background or your bloodline. Whatever era we're in, that is an encouragement for the outsider. Then to the non-Jewish population, that they were not excluded. They were able to join in. Even they could become children of God. These days, to be honest, it's likely to be different groups who feel excluded. There are different in-crowds or there are different out-crowds. Maybe it's an encouragement to anybody who's not a Westerner, who thinks that the Christian faith is a Western religion. Maybe an encouragement to those who, who haven't been to the, the right university or the right school or have the right background or doesn't quite fit in. It's a beautiful truth. To all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And what matters now then is simply how you relate to Jesus. Do you see that? I want to say it's not how your parents relate to Jesus. It's not about your parents' faith or their lineage or their background. It is simply you and what you believe. It is what you believe that gives you the right to be a child of God. I was told recently by a friend of a fascinating encounter um, that Billy Graham had whilst in Australia a while ago. He was doing a a sort of mission and evangelistic talks. And he was interviewed on on the radio in Sydney. Um, And the radio presenter said, Dr. Graham, if you died tonight, how sure are you that you'd go to heaven? And Billy Graham said, I'm certain that if I died tonight, I would go and be with the Lord Jesus. And you know, the switchboards were absolutely jammed with listeners complaining. One said, I could not believe my ears how arrogant of him for anyone to say they could be certain of going to heaven. Why did they react like that? Well, because they believed that you become a child of God by what you do. You get to heaven, you have a relationship with God because you are good, which is not true. It's a very popular belief, though. So when Billy Graham said, I'm certain I'm going to heaven, they thought he was saying, I have been good enough to earn my place. But that is wrong. No, no, it's to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He wasn't being arrogant. He simply knew that as we believe and we receive Jesus, as we trust him, then you can be humbly sure 
of being his. And you know, that can be a brand new start. It is purely dependent on you trusting him and turning your life to him. Which for many is simply a, a dream come true. It's, it's not about being good. He doesn't want you to try a bit harder and to turn over a new leaf and to give a bit more to charity and to come to church a bit more often. Or to work a bit on your faults and your foibles. He wants you. He gives himself to you in the form of his son. And he says, trust me. This eternal word who has life in himself, life to create and to make, is the eternal word who can bring people to life, to give them new life, to bring them into his family, to become children of God. You see, that is why Jesus is the present that you need this Christmas. God's gift of himself is for you. And it deals with your greatest needs. If you are here and you aren't a Christian, I'd love to urge you not to do what we all do at Christmas. Because we go up into the loft and we get out the manger and all the scenes and the tinsel and stuff and we, we put it up and we make it look nice and we put little Jesus back up again because he keeps falling over. And we arrange it and we look at it for a month or so and then we pop the baby Jesus away for a year and get him out again next December. John says this is urgent. If you do that, then you do not receive him. You do not recognise him. Verse 10, verse 11. What John wants us to see is that we need him all the time. He wants us all the time. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God.